0: One, this is episode three of FIA Goes PC and yeah, we're back again. They've given us another chance, win, Aren't you happy about that? We're back. We are back. Say hello to everyone. Hello. So we're here, obviously, Wyn is here with me, but we have a very, very, very special guest this week. He's a star of both stage and screen. Ah. He's, he's a legend that lives and he is Mr. Graham Rose.
1: Uh, that's me, and it is a pleasure to see you both.
0: Yay! And we... indeed, to hear you both, yeah, which is obviously a very helpful thing. It is. Yeah, means our senses are working. That means we can go forwards. So Graham is, you've done a lot. You are the busiest guy I know. Pretty uh, much.
1: Well, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, that could be a euphemism for me being old.
0: No, no, you're you're never old. You're only as, as, as old as you feel. How exactly. old do you feel? I'm feeling pretty old with the moment, so
1: <laughs> it's been quite a tough couple of months, but there you
0: go. We're going yes. to talk about those couple of months, because you're actually doing some seriously exciting stuff right now.
1: Um, I feel very lucky to, to be doing quite a lot of uh, exciting theatre work, mainly. I'm not really a star of the screen, Daniel, but <laughs> <laughs> obviously I have uh, worked with you guys yeah. very briefly, so I've uh, made some cameo appearances on screen. But, um, but my main bag is, is theatre, you might say. So that's what I'm m- most well known for.
0: This is true. He is known for his theatre. And actually, that's what we wanted to talk about today, going through. I think what what's a good topic for, for me to introduce is kind of like how things have changed, you know, going way back to in my lifetime, you know, going back to when I was a nipper, I, I just remember theatre being quite, um, you know, I wouldn't say... There was more of it, but there was a lot. I feel like there's been a lot of changes in the last thirty years of my life, and God knows the stories you've got going, going through the through the years, especially recent. How how would you say that it's changed recently? It's, it's quite,
1: um, recently, I mean, it's, I think is always evolving, but it's quite difficult to, to appreciate how that's it's doing that in the moment. You know, you, you need the benefit of some kind of academic or kind of critical review to see what how things have shifted over over time but i'd like to think that theater is always a a good uh kind of alembic there's a good word (laughs) alembic it's a little kind of distillation chamber of of the kind of things that are going on kind of politically and socially in the world at any one moment so you get a reflection of society through theater at least that's why
0: that's That's an amazing analogy because actually you've just uh kind of covered a lot of theatre in just saying that if we think about like going back to the Greeks that was pretty much you could or, or, like argue from tragedy came satire you know especially in the political wings with the philosophy that was flying around in those eras well I think
1: I, there's nothing I find more funny than tragedy to be perfectly <laughs> honest Danny. and, and uh, that's good because we, you share that's,
0: my, that's the theme really of our thing. podcast but uh, <laughs> <laughs> really, I, I we just found the title haven't we <laughs>
1: I think uh, theatre is always one way of demonstrating how how life events, how events, how circumstances can shape us and how it's always better to watch somebody else doing tragic things than to do them yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. My life is about <laughs> creating tragic things on stage, which perhaps mirrors the tragic things in my life. Who
0: knows? Oh, you always seem happy to me.
1: Yeah, no, I, I keep pretty buoyant. I always feel very lucky to be doing the things that I, I do. Uh, but sometimes you look back on it and you think, it's utterly stupid kind of trying to exist in this arts world. Yeah. Because it doesn't make much sense. It doesn't make much rational sense. But um for, for many artists, I think, working in, in theatre or whatever discipline you work in is, is like a haven. You feel it's safe territory you can make your risks and you can uh, express yourself and express your kind of opinions and reflections on the world in a in a kind of safe territory it's like a religion
0: a degree of separation almost wouldn't you say yeah
1: yeah it's good to be an observer you feel slightly on the outside slightly marginal at times but that's the nature of 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 doing the work i think
0: it's great so when you're um Talk to us about your theatre experience, because uh, you got a hero, yeah, haven't you?
2: Yeah, I was uh, first inspired by Peter Brook when he um, brought Le Costume to Hong Kong uh, during one of the arts festivals, and I was just mesmerized by how he could use a space and minimal sort of props and costumes to create something that's very naturalistic and affecting.
0: See, it's really interesting because if I convert that into film, you've just explained my uh, film course where we had three things and basically a blank blank room to work with. <laughs> but it, it's quite interesting because that's the thing that I think is quite fascinating about theatre because my, my background in theatre is site-specific. That was what really clicked on for me when I was studying performing arts. I just like the the challenge of – see, there's, there's a lot of very – like people have a different impression of site-specific – um, for me, it was always um, kind of if you walk into say a room or a space, <clears throat> it's what you can imagine as a story in that environment. And usually, I went to some pretty strange, <laughs> odd places. I'm the boiler room guy when everyone else is in the uh, the comfortable mm. black box theatre. You know, I'm I'm the guy that's looking through the cemeteries. But you know, that's that's just me, typical me, as you both know.
2: Um. <laughs> well, um, the reason I like theatre when I was a kid, as opposed to film, was the fact that um, theatre has this ability to create something minimalistically. And I was not so drawn to the naturalistic stuff. I think if you like naturalistic storytelling, you love film. Whereas I like the sort of more abstract, more sort of existentialist theatre stories. Yeah, I
0: was was actually the frustration of my uh, teacher in acting and, and theater direction because I was always thinking film. So I'd always like try and get <laughs> naturalism. I'd try and get uh, sets and, and design it like I was making a TV pilot and that used to drive him mad. Yeah. But there you go. Cause uh, Graham, you're, you're uh, working with a couple of things that we are a big fan of. Um, we'll bring up Stan's calf with you. I absolutely love Stan's Caf. I think I think you guys have this amazing way of giving sort of two thirds of the most inspirational questions and then ask the audience to answer. Is that fair? Uh, I think
1: that's definitely a fair reflection on it. Um, I co-founded Stan's Calf back in 1991. I'd had a company prior to that uh, when I came out of Lancaster University as a a keen, uh, hungry graduate. With a, an appetite for making my own work and a, a total belief and commitment to that idea that you, with a like-minded bunch of people, you could make your own theatre and you could create your own rules, and not have to follow anybody else's pattern for doing things. And I think that's one of the great beauties of, of theatre is that is is this combination of different disciplines and and interests and and ideas uh, where you can you can make whatever you want. And the, the kind of common thing that unites all theatre is basically the creation of a live event for, for an audience. Yeah, obviously, sure. but that could be anywhere. That could be in a a, a theatre studio. It could be in a cemetery, as yeah. I really point out. And, <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, cemetery. Yeah, I've performed in cemeteries. <laughs> yeah. so Haven't have we all? For that.
0: <laughs> the thing wins... Left the room in a panic yeah. at the moment. No, joking. Um, well, you kind of—it's um, it, the kind of crazy thing you do, isn't it? Yeah. Is, um,
1: there's there's an excitement about space, and 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 I think Birmingham excited me in particular because certainly when we formed the company, the the city was had been on its knees at the at the end of a, peri- a long period of post-industrial decline. Yeah. yeah. And there was this glimmer of hope that things were going to change and the city was going to reinvent itself. But as a young theatre company, we found it very difficult to get gigs Uh, at the time. I think the small-scale touring network, which was the mechanism by which theatre companies would take their performances to art centres, art house theatres and wherever around the country, that was starting to crumble a little bit, that network. And so we wanted to make work desperately, make new theatre, but we didn't necessarily know where that was going to go, and uh, that's a source of frustration. So, uh, an early show that we did, we did in Mosley Road Swimming Baths, and that was prompted by a visit to that space—a beautiful, beautiful Edwardian uh, kind of tiled swimming facility. Yeah, yeah, sure. It was built in uh, nineteen oh. Nineteen (laughs) hundred something. that. a while ago. um, A while ago. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, we just sat in this space and we thought, I want to make a piece of theatre here. Let's just do it. Let's do it.
0: That's actually, and and that's what we did. So that's that's great. Because I I was just going to say, off that before we carry on, um, it's actually literally the sort of thing that um, got me into theatre too. I I think we are really blessed in this area. A lot of people, um, when they think of the UK abroad, they always think London. And they skipped this area, but this area has so much history in it. And I think growing up near Stratford upon Avon, for me as a kid, was like we are so blessed. We've got we've got history everywhere. And when you when you think like that, and you, you I, I really appreciate Stan's calf because it's kind of very similar to our ambition in film. You know, like why we set a, a company up mm. is for very similar reasons. Mm. And uh, it's just. It's these fascinating things because where you said you walked into that swimming pool and you had that essential atmosphere, that vibe, it's, it's that kind of old thing. You can smell it, but it excites you. You, you, you just start in, envisioning something from the past or something very uh, Renaissance, something very of, of now with almost a steampunk culture or something, you know. I, I had this experience in the weirdest place ever. I was in Hong Kong. And we'll get to Hong Kong later because we should talk about your experiences in Hong Kong too. But Mm. for me, it was, there's this Western market and this is how stupid it gets. It was probably built in a similar era. So Edwardian, Mm -hmm. maybe Victorian. And there's this bathroom at the top and it has the same tiling of the old swimming baths, you know, and you just walk into this building. And you're, you come out of Hong Kong, as you know, which is like flipping everything, you know, on its on its face and you're in a different planet, kind of in Blade Runner or something like this. And then you get to this space and it was literally like being in England. This this bathroom, nothing else was, but this one bathroom with the tile, the scents, the atmosphere, everything like that was just like, man, I'm, I'm right back in Stratford, strangest feeling, you know? So anyway, bit of a yeah. tangent, but carry on.
1: Well... Spaces have ghosts attached to them. Sure, you know, they're yeah. animated by human activity and whatever that has been. And so you have to take all of that on board. You've got layers of narrative that precede you in this in this space. And that's part of the excitement of working in those buildings. Rather than a black box studio, you, you get to totally control yeah, yeah. all yeah. of the elements yeah. and you create the fiction yeah. you know, from bottom up. But in those spaces, there are already fictions yeah. that exist and... And what, what we discovered from doing that in the, in the swimming pool, we, we did a, uh, a, an interpretation of the King Canute uh, nice. narrative.
0: <laughs> Why does that not it's me? It's called
1: Canute, Canute the King. Nice. And so it took the idea of Canute trying to control the waves, but, the, but we also had a layer which was about the demise of the Prince Charles and Diana sure. story. Sure. So, which was current at the time, a, a marriage that's on the rocks. Yeah. And the, Charles trying to kind of turn the tide of opinion in a way uh, in in his favour. A monarch in waiting. Yeah. But but this kind of weight of history kind of being against him in a way. So the, the narrative was multi-layered. But the building itself, of course, it, aside from exciting us, it excited the audience. So we brought an audience in. They just they came because they they loved having the opportunity to nose around this, yes. this old yeah. building.
0: And it's, it's, it's very exciting as an audience when, especially in this time, as you said, um, I mean, I, I just about uh, can relate to what you're saying because it was kind of, um, there was a lot of changes going on around that era, uh, especially in music, which is where I was thinking. But then you suddenly had this revival British uh, film uh, movement was happening mid-90s as well. But right at that beginning, you're absolutely right in saying that, we were hitting this kind of dead end zone in Birmingham at a time. And um, it got exciting soon after. So it's almost these thoughts. If you can imagine at that time, uh, a lot of audiences, maybe even in the world, hadn't had that kind of experience because you were really kind of forefront site specific theatre at that point. And I'm pretty sure it's exciting anyway. Like I remember when I actually first met, <laughs> one of the first days I'd met Wynn. Passing a decade, and she was working a site specific at the mailbox, which is this highfalutin, it's not actually a post box in the middle of Birmingham, it's actually a highfalutin, you know, a, executive kind of uh, luxury apartments mm-hmm. with malls that none mm-hmm. of us can afford, you know. Um, and she she had a unit, uh, her group, who was she,
2: the group? It was uh, with the Other Way Works.
0: There you go. Mm-hmm. And we all know them, don't we, Greg?
1: We do, <laughs> I've worked with them a couple of years ago, I've worked with them in, on a hotel based piece.
0: Yes. I remember hearing about that. Like yeah, the yeah, yeah. Hotel,
1: Radisson Hotel. And that went to different hotels around the country yeah. as well. So.
0: That was exciting. That was an exciting idea. It, it was kind of like, just to finish the point about size specific, I I saw then, Birmingham's had very few things. Like London has this kind of stuff popping up all the time. It had it in Camden with, uh, I think there was a Faust um experience uh, yeah it was in a warehouse in a warehouse yeah yeah. that's right so london always has these kind of cool things i remember the first real kind of commercial thing was like a a thing tied into the alien films (laughs) and i had this at the trocadera in london and everyone was raving about that that was high license but birmingham the thing that i like about this city is we always build from within we always kind of create something and install it from within. And things like uh, that experience at bats going back to then must have been crazy exciting. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, but we,
1: in a way, that we didn't work to anybody else's formula. We just saw the space and thought, we, we have to make this work. And ultimately, the idea, if you've got a strong idea, yeah. you'll find a way of, of making it work. So you're right in saying that there wasn't much going on sure. sort of site specific work there were some there was an artist collective here called Fine Rats who who did some installation based pieces under the spaghetti junction and along the M5 by west brom so there were there were visual artists and sound artists who were kind of working in this field but uh, at the time this is kind of about 1989 1990, yep. 1990 91. Yep. but we we felt like we got a strong idea and we just wanted to make it work and Another facet of that was the music theatre dimension. So I we'd been working with a, a an old school friend of mine, Rick Chu, uh, who was a, an opera singer by training and a composer and a wonderful pianist. And um, and so we we started to make some pieces that were that collided musical form with with theatre form, which really started a, a kind of obsession for me. And so after Knut, <laughs> cool. I really wanted to kind of maintain that kind of working relationship. And, um, and I took time away from Stan's in the mid-90s, 95. Uh, I wanted to try and pursue the science-specific work idea. So we formed another company called The Resurrectionists, and we created a piece called Vesalius a Requiem, where Rick wrote the Requiem Mass. And I created a theatre form. It, it, basically, it followed the idea of an autopsy, the right. narrative of an autopsy. So you got my attention. And right, we, right so we needed the right space to make that piece work. And right. so we found the old Victorian, old operating theatre Oh wow. at uh, St. Thomas's Church in London, in Southwark. Right. And that, that space, it's a, it's a preserved Victorian operating theatre with an auditorium yeah, yeah. The, for medical students.
0: Yeah. Which was typical of the time. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah.
1: pre-anesthetic Operating theatre, which was designed for students, really. So students would gather to watch somebody having their leg amputated, having their gallstone removed uh, without anaesthetic. So we made this for that space, and subsequently we 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 took that to Bologna. Bologna is a a seat of learning in the Renaissance, sure, and it's a place where Vesalius, who is Andreas Vesalius, was this Renaissance dissector. So we had one of, the, one, of the, one of the layers of the narrative about his life. We were telling the story of the anatomist through a form of a requiem mass, two opera singers and myself as, as the pathologist. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> and we were able to take this to Bologna and subsequently took it to the Royal Society of Australia. Right. Yep, yeah, in Adelaide. Wow. And there's talk about maybe reviving it later this year Touch. Wood. I'm trying to look for some wood to a. <laughs> uh, that be maybe doing it in uh, in Victoria, Australia. That would be amazing. Getting your teeth into an idea and wrestling with it, finding the right form for it,
0: yeah,
1: is is exciting. And that's I think it's one thing that Stan's Caff does really well. Um, I kind of left Stan's Caff, but have returned as an associate artist. So I work on a project basis now with with uh, with Stan's calf. The artistic director is, is James, yeah, from, my yeah, co-founder. Yeah. And it, we never like to pursue typical theatre form. I mean, there are theatre-based pieces, but but most of the work takes the idea as its kernel and then finds the right form to serve the interests of the idea. When we formed the company, we thought we felt that Birmingham was just at the right point in its history. Yeah. There was nothing else going on, no the yeah, being pretty made.
0: much a forefront thought. There, there well.
1: were a, a, a few companies, but they were working principally in in education. Sure. So, with, so the the money, perhaps led by the money, the money was coming through theatre and education, theatre and health education at the time, yep. Yep. and all the politics around theatre making was very much geared towards kind of issue based, community based yep. work.
0: Well, this is kind of the era where you suddenly had the Ben Out and Boom on TV with the young ones and. All of these things were popping out as well, where there was a lot of satire in the the air. Because I I, I remember around that time was one of my favorite shows as a kid, more for the visuals than the content, because I was way too young to fully follow what was going on. But that was Spitting Image, which was um, a puppet show, in effect, which was all caricatures and satire. And it was a very satirical time in, in, in culture, wasn't it? At that era.
1: I, th- I think on the back of the Thatcher years, yeah, yeah, there was a, a kind of dis- sense of discontent, and the nation had been kind of brought to its knees in the sense that everything was changing. There was lots of change; manufacturing industry kind of collapsed. Yes, really, yeah. certainly in this in this part. And there was of the world. there was
0: a huge youth movement. You got to think like there was a lot yeah. of um, a lot of new things were popping up around that time. So. Because I, I always know this from, um, I have this memory of going down to London at that point and I think I saw my first um, sort of like diehard punk rocker with the old technical and Mohawk in that era. And London was, a, it was all satire. You wouldn't go through a, a street or something with someone without a poster sprayed out eyes or something like this of someone in politics. And it's always stuck with me because you can reflect on it now. And actually grey I think like, again the story is quite important because to me it's almost like you actually had part of a revolution in what you were doing because if it wasn't for that thinking i think theater would have stayed quite stagnant it would have stayed quite uh, commercial as well quite west end passive you know but what you guys were doing even now like if, if we get to relevance and i'm not going to kind of build up too much and embarrass you but uh, <laughs> I always look at Stan's calf, and I think you guys are ahead of the curve in many ways, like the way um, you view things. Because you're a big touring company now, you, you kind of go all over the place. I think I
1: think you asked asking earlier about how things have changed over the last thirty years. And sure. Certainly in the in the seventies, new theatre. Not I'm not talking about commercial theatre. I'm talking yeah. about from the yeah, streets. New new, new work. <laughs> Yeah. was kind of dominated probably by playwriting and, and was very politically yeah. driven yeah. so the idea of what they call the state of the nation play where playwrights drove the process and those plays discussed aspects of social or political life in this country and, and it was all about dialectics, about yeah. Yeah. argument as composed through the form of a play and um, when, come the late 80s, and probably stimulated by that, that kind of punk, so yeah, yes, yeah, late 70s yeah, in, into through the, the 80s, 80s yeah, I should yeah, say, yeah, yeah. that kind of punk, post-punk era. And for me, in the late 80s, there was a whole kind of sexual politics, sexual yeah. revolution that was, was having an impact on the way that things were discussed. We um, plundered all our sets from skips. Because there was a lot of crap on the street, yep. and and we would we would make our set out of old pallets. It's frightening to think of now. But that show I was talking to you about, Canute the King, was basically built out of pallets. We had, <laughs> we built a jetty out of pallets <laughs> that were floating on the swimming bath.
0: Yeah, it's, so, it's it's just reminds me of the first thing I ever got involved with. Uh, we did something very similar to that because uh, it, it's actually a good tip. I think Uh no pun intended. Good tip. Oh, that was a good one. Um, it's actually a good tip for anyone starting out because when I think a lot of people, uh, when they think theatre, they always go elaborate first in their heads. But when you actually start really thinking about what you can achieve, if and this is why um, something that I have in common with Grey is basically, um, with site specific, it's a case where half the work's done for you. So it's really a matter of how you can make the rest of it. So you've got two parts of the the jigsaw puzzles, how you can fit the rest. And actually looking at really simple ways to tell a story, because with pallets, you can bounce light off them and things like this as well to cast shadows. So it's almost like you create three-dimensional space from anything. You know, I I saw something with road signs where they were trying to create a Berlin Wall uh, aspect and they just had all the road signs stacked up and then bounce the light off it so it's shadow out. And then when they were doing it, falling it all uh, fell like, like litter, you know. But the metaphors are really strong, and it's it's quite interesting because there's been since um, Britain's Got Talent, this is a seriously random thing to say. But shadow play has been some of the f- most fascinating things done on theatre in recent years. And it, it just goes back to what theatre can be principally about. It's really and this is going back to to my view on Stan's calf, which you'll never get to be an audience or stuff. You know, I always come out of everything you've ever done that I've seen. And I always think, man, that's just, it's like a revolution in your head. Cause you always look at, um, say, uh, the cleansing of Constance Brown, which was something that I've never forgotten in a million years. The idea is so, simple it shut down a kind of uh, corridor and and the viewer sees it almost like a movie and it's an evolution it's an evolutionary tale uh, no words at all and you just go through this the, this historical moment up to a very poignant ending I will not ruin it because people should go and see this but um just seeing that was just I, I was just blown away by how how Movement and coordination and, and so much drama can be can be done on on silence. It was a real and again you just you the whole way back from anything you ever do. I think Win and I just chat it over, analyze it, and just be like, "How did I come up with this stuff? This stuff is incredible." The
2: cleansing of Constance Brown is my favorite Sandcalf performance that I've seen.
0: Right. The uh, Japanese thing uh, you guys did, uh, Craig was doing that, uh, we saw in Wolverhampton. Yeah. Um, I forget the name. I'm bad uh, with names.
1: Yeah, I, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, I forgot it now. It's
0: one of those. But yeah. that that again, and sorry... Translation of Shadows. There you go. Um, but that that show again was... There was something like, again, the ending. It's always the ending. There's something at the end that really knocks you in both of those. You know, there's... there's In in Cleansing Constance Brown, it's kind of an uh, (laughs) awe-inspiring moment. Your jaw drops, basically. With uh, the Japanese thing, it's actually a comical reveal, and it's it's very well done, but it was almost um, their use of media in that uh, media and live performance was something that I think, as a theatre mind, you always think about, but you're never brave enough to pull it off, and they pulled it off in this way that was fantastic, and... You Know kudos, but Stan's Cafe is that to me. It's like two thirds of a complete thing that just revolutionizes your mind, and the audience has to fill in the last third. The Rice show that you do, which you'll tell mm. me the name of, of all the people in all the world. That's correct. That's been big over the, in, in around the world, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The uh, it's like a
1: simple idea executed to its nth degree. Yeah. Um, I think with both of those shows, the the translation of Shadows was taking the idea of the, I think it's called a Benchy, is it? Yeah. An early, early cinematic phenomenon in Japan, certainly perhaps elsewhere in, in East Asia, where a character, a kind of classical performer, had the job of describing everything that appeared on the screen as if like a musical accompaniment, but a dis- an audio description. And so it was taking that idea and, and reformatting it and bringing it up to date. Um, so it's kind of, ex- again, it's exploring the idea of a theatre form or a cross-media collaborative yeah, yeah. theatre
0: form. Which it really was, cross-media. It was, it was, and one of the most original I've seen in, in its hmm. sheer simplicity, which is what I love about you guys, everything's really really simple in you know in presentation, but very complex in what yeah. through, you get through. With know? the with the
1: rice show of all the people in all the world, the print basic principle is one grain of rice for one human, yeah. and then beyond that, human statistics can be weighed out and measured, and you get a a a, a kind of perspective on human history. And narrative, the narrative of human geography, as told through these piles of rice. It's a very simple idea, but it's quite sophisticated in its uh, execution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it's endlessly
0: uh, fascinating
1: and and alluring for an audience.
0: And it's it's just, like, I always, because whenever I see uh, pictures from everything you do, like, the fact that that has been so many places... That's got to be incredible when you think about it. Yeah, it builds up its
1: own mythology, I suppose, and it continues to, to grow and evolve as an idea because you can translate it to different settings, sure. different kinds of buildings. I mean, we talked about site-specific, but yeah, this, yeah. The, the meaning of this show changes depending on where it is. So we've we've recently performed it in the Ruhr in industrial Germany. In, in a theatre space, so it's a black box studio, will be a big one, <laughs> a um, very big one. So we've yeah we've performed sure. it there with eight tons of rice, yeah. which, is, which is roughly the population of Europe. We've we performed, performed it in chambers of commerce buildings, so brightly lit, kind formal, commercial spaces. Sure. Performed it in cathedrals, yeah. So in sacred spaces, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, wherever it goes, you can you can change and shift the meaning of it and the the focus of it.
0: It's just yeah. fascinating because I just think like um, when you go back to when sort of late eighties, early nineties, and you're starting mm. this journey. Can you, whenever you connect to anything in your work, and you're you're constantly doing something, you don't have much time to reflect. But if you think about it, as the guy that started way back then. To look at this now and think, "Wow, we're we're going all uh, across the world with it." Doesn't that blow your mind? It does, but you you know you
1: have dreams. You even if you you don't have high expectations necessarily, but you you dream that it might be possible for you to continue doing this, and to you know the idea of realizing a simple idea from from you know a sketch on a sure, on the back of sure, an envelope. Yeah, yeah. And, and making it possible and then taking it anywhere is a, is a dream. Getting a gig in Stockton on Tees, which was the first ever gig out of uni that I got, <laughs> seemed like a dream. You know? Yeah, of course. yeah, it sure, yeah. and performing to, you know, 50, 15, I don't know how many people it was at the time. It's terrific. You're actually putting it out there. Uh, but, you know, having had the, the opportunity to take shows to Australia or Singapore or indeed Hong, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, yeah. Which we'll get um, to now in know, a minute. America is it's a it's a dream, yeah. I feel very lucky.
0: Well, I think it's amazing. I think it's a testament to who you are in theatre because it's it's our place to remind you how how you're a hero to us because you really are, you know.
1: Well, it's you know it's a, it is a bit of a dream, and it's you, you hope that it might be possible to to do these things, but uh but you don't often get a chance to reflect on it yeah. till afterwards. Yeah, you just have to see it through. And it's coming back to Wynne's reference to Peter Brook. What I remember from my own, my one uh, experience of seeing the Peter Brook company, and that was in uh, Hanover, I think it was at some point. Hanover, a building called the Orangery <laughs> in, 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 a, in a, a suburb of Hanover. It's just that you can smell the commitment, you know, that just the, the commitment to that idea yeah. was absolute and And it transcended all of the mechanics of 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 making the piece somehow. There was an absolute dedication to the subject matter which hit you very, very strongly, and you didn't have to know what the piece was about this as it happened, it was being performed in French, I think right 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 uh, yeah, stand to reason. I didn't really understand <laughs> yeah. what the piece was, yeah. But the commitment to the material was so strong, yeah. you could not help but be swept along by that. Sure. And I, I think that's also true. You mentioned Constance Brown. I think, I think it, that's a, a good example of a piece that, that has momentum, it has drive and commitment behind it. Well, it covers, and you're sucked into, I think into the, the world thing, of that.
0: And show. I think the thing that's quite amazing about Constance Brown is that it covers so much emotional uh, spectrum you got things that make you laugh out loud, you know, you've got things that tear you up, you know, and, and make you think like it's, it was just fascinating. I don't, it's almost like to me in, in the film world, cause that's kind of predominantly my, my universe now, but David Lynch generates that kind of atmosphere that you guys covered in that. And, and that's saying a lot. It's almost like you're living in, in a dream world, mm. you know? Yeah. I felt
2: like I was traveling through time and space, yeah. even though it was one space. Yeah. The layers of story in one narrow corridor. Yeah, well, this was at the um,
0: this was at the side of uh, one of the uh, areas. Not even a theater, but an area within uh, the Warwick Art Center when we saw it. So it was tucked away between. It was
2: almost like a back alley. Yeah. within theater.
0: Yeah, just to set it up for the the people. Um, Really, if you get a chance to see Sanscaf on on one of their tours, you should check them out. Because for me, I think the reason that I'm... It's kind of my battle with theatre was always that. I always wanted to get involved in site-specific. I always believed that was the truest form of theatre, which really... Because I think the challenge for me is you need to um, get people questioning when they leave. And you need them to not only escape and be entertained, that is important, but really think and feel. And as you were saying about Peter Brook, it's like, um, when, the, when theatre is that commitment and, and everyone is committed to the performance, it, it's quite amazing how long it lasts. It's, a film can last in your head for a week or maybe two. Theatre can last for years and years and years, if not forever, when it really hits you hard, you know.
2: Well, with Peter Brook, I think one of his sort of areas of experimentation was cross-cultural, cross-linguistical, cross-language. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because in developing his style, he took his company to Africa. And when there is no language communication... Well, it's
0: also radical as well. That's a, that's a How radical can you tell thing? a story? And yeah, sure. yeah. someone of that prestige... In that time, because I'm guessing that was when when would that that have been the African trip? Possibly uh, I'm not sure. 60s, Probably, yes, 60s yeah. or 70s. Yeah. that's just the the testament of how powerful theatre is because there is almost no um, when it when it's like really committed and it's really organic and real. Again, I call it from the streets rather than from sort of a prestigious elitist place uh, like Broadway or the West End. It's not saying that that's completely true of those areas, but when it's sort of indie or fringe or the ideas are very um, for the people, you know, from the people. To me, it's quite amazing that theatre has never run into um, any, any of the stigmatic stuff that film walks into quite frequently. It actually opens minds rather than closes them. Film can close minds in, in a heartbeat. You know, if you watch something that offends you, you're done with it. And then it's controversy. But theatre always makes you think. Sometimes, of course, it can be controversial as hell. But my point is, something like Peter Brook going to Africa, that's incredible. The experience, and I've only had the experience, and we talked about this very briefly in episode two, but I've only had the experience of being in a band in Hong Kong. But the reaction is the same. Um, you get off your gig and it's silence and everyone's analyzing you with these wide eyes and that's it. And you're not sure if you've done a good job or a bad job or whatever, but half the time it's because they're processing what they've seen or they're analyzing it, you know, like the analytical mind of Asia. And you had an incredible experience in Hong Kong. Hey, with John Holloway. Uh, yeah, I, yeah.
1: Jonathan Holloway is a long-time collaborator of mine through Redshift. He's a founder of Redshift Theatre Company and I joined the company for three touring shows in the late 90s and and then joined the board of Redshift. And subsequently, I, uh, Redshift actually kind of closed as an ongoing concern as a, as a funded company. Sure. but um, But Jonathan continues to make work and he was invited by Chung Ying Theatre Company who are one of the rep companies yeah. in yeah. Hong Kong. They really to, are, um,
0: just to set that up for, for people who don't know, they are one of the biggest companies from Hong Kong.
2: Yeah, that, uh, the Chung Ying Theatre Company was established during uh, colonial rule so it's one of yeah. the yeah. oldest.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's very reputable. Mm-hmm.
2: Chung Ying being Chinese English.
0: Yeah. And the it started company. out as, a, or as an English-speaking
1: Company, yes, yeah, sure, with its uh, founder, but uh, the company's kind of grown and evolved since then, and is now yeah, it's got quite a considerable output yeah. of material. But uh, one of the ambitions in recent years was to try and restore part of the English language program in their in their uh, scheduling. So they uh, commissioned Jonathan and uh, some Western performers to, to go over to work with Chung Ying and uh, work on his adaptations of Jekyll and Hyde the Robert Mm -hmm. Louis Stevenson story and then A Tale of Two Cities the Dickens Uh, Jonathan's adaptation of Les Miserables Victor Hugo's Les Miserables the non-singing non-dancing version the story version uh, version, had, had been produced by Chung Ying in the early noughties I think perhaps 2005 maybe with Peter Jordan directing, and that was in Cantonese. Right, nice. That's so, true. so that was that was earlier on. But uh, they really liked Jonathan's adaptation, and I think it may have had a second outing since then. Sure. But uh, but it, it it seemed natural that Jonathan would be invited over and and, and do it in. again. So um, I went with him as a as a long term collaborator of his. I I, I went and
0: I and you had you had winners your host didn't you? yeah yeah it i was, was around it was, <laughs> you were you were giving we them yeah. the tour you were giving Graham so i i had to live this by curiosity through photographs and in a digital platform <laughs> top secret it was fantastic
1: being being in hong kong and being able to see you there on your home turf mm-hmm. and getting a proper tour of uh, of the island and and the, the in new territories so uh it was a quite an overwhelming experience, I have to say, being in Hong Kong that first time. Because yeah. for anybody visiting the first time, yeah. it yeah. is an overload.
0: It is. Well, this <laughs> in is, so many ways. This is a, a very much how anyone who's ever been to Hong Kong pretty much longer than a week always comes back with this disclaimer of, so when you go you are going to be so overstimulated. You are not going to sleep. Everything's going to be intense and it's going to hit you like a a lump of lead. You know, it really is that though. It's, I think what it is, um, especially when uh, you're situated on the island and that was my first experience on the mid-levels when I was out there working my dad as a teenager. The island life, especially from us us guys in the Midlands here, you know, rural England sort of thing, it's so super city, so intense, like half living science fiction and half living in the past. You know, it's it's just absolutely incredible. And you know, when when we'll never have that experience, so to speak. So we all have to speak like the tourists go in there. <laughs> but um, it really is quite an incredible, incredible place. And then you take that to the rural areas, the uh, places in Hong Kong that still exist, where you've got these capes. Literally, just breathtaking capes. These areas that no one really knows about, or any local perspective like Lantau. When you see all of this, you literally—that's what you want to see. I feel like that—that's the Hong Kong you want to know. I think it's very
1: important to get a perspective on where you are, and and if you're working on the island, we were we were based in uh, Wan Chai, yeah. and and uh, working on the mid levels, yeah. Uh, but it wasn't until like. Got some perspective and went off the yeah, island. Yeah. That I started to understand what Hong Kong was, and actually visiting the new territories was a breath of
0: fresh air. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's exactly that, and I think it's a good tip because that. That's pretty much all the tourism information you really need to have about Hong Kong and survival. <laughs> get off the island, no, I'm joking. Well, um, it's, it's a bit uh,
2: intimidating, <laughs> I think, if you don't have a friend or, you know, a guy to go into the new territories because not everyone speaks English. So you're really thrown into the deep yeah. end. And it, yeah. it can get uncomfortable for some people, which is why they stay on Kowloon and the island. Well, we,
0: we had that experience uh, when your cousin came over from America and he can't speak Chinese and I can't speak Chinese and, and I was at work and you're at work. And we, I just took him out for lunch and number one in the area that we were, um, no one spoke English and so no one would serve us <laughs> from through sheer panic. And, uh, it wasn't through anything technical. It was because no one had the courage to use English. They were all a bit shy and withdrawn and, uh, what it is, what it is. Uh, but we were there for it must have been two hours before anyone served us and then you get this brash waitress coming out of nowhere like oh I can speak English hello everyone you know which is great but it was tough I mean it, it does get tough in rural Hong Kong but you do survive you find ways um, get a friend get a friend <laughs> yeah. isn't that true of most places get a friend being visitors it's like anywhere on earth if you're not from that place you see it in a totally new light you know and anyone that's Local takes it all for granted. So to kind of get very exciting um, thoughts in these places, it's almost like one of our ambitions. I think the three people in this room is to kind of link forces and try and uh, wake up the the old uh, art gene because it's at the moment it's all it's all kind of slowly in a coma. I think there are
1: real opportunities at the, at the moment, and I think there is a, an appetite. Yeah, for Cultural expression, from what I can gather, Hong Kong is going through a period of, of transformation. Yeah, it is, yeah. and I think I think local people are very conscious of of their the complex historical roots. Yeah, a layered
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, Wait, identity. Actually,
0: Graham, it's actually going back to punk rock right now, Hong Kong. It's it's in the eighty nine nineties of England. Well, yeah, potentially
1: there yeah. are. There is political, you know, edginess. Yes, but very and much there's so. A, there's, there's a need <laughs> for, so. for young people to want to find ways of expressing themselves. And I think
0: I think sensibly as well, because if you do it one way or another, there's there's a way you do it. There's a way that I feel like it's actually a very good point. There's a way to express, because if you go uh, too, too heavy in one direction, I think it will stop before it starts. I think there's an opportunity there. And and hopefully that's kind of what, what we can do to sort of guide it a little bit, because if it's too loud, things will get quite, quite risky. Let's put it that way. Well, Hong Kong is going through some serious stuff.
2: I think that's why I was really interested in site-specific theater saying, oh, there's a space. And, you know, well, the idea of spaces, not just physical space, but cultural space, space of language. You mentioned uh, Hong Kong's identity. I think that's one of the main sort of conflicts that we have within ourselves, because uh, when we were British, we were always defined by, oh, we're not British. We're not them. Yeah. And now that we're Chinese, we're like, oh, but we're not Chinese. We're Hong Kong. And there's this, the space of identity in Hong Kong is very confused, I think. Like the older generation will say, oh, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm from China. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, But the younger generation is like, but I don't want to be that. I don't understand that. I don't have that history.
0: It's it's actually quite similar to what I would say the uh, British-born Chinese or the the American Asian kids. Uh, It's that non-relatability because they're from this super city because they're born into it they don't know anything else so to them Hong Kong is their country mm-hmm. and rightly so because mm-hmm. that's what it's obviously mentally going to feel like it has
2: its own culture
0: totally and I feel like this is uh, and this is a little bit of a serious point here um but something that we've been very passionate about Win and I has always been to try and utilize that to be exactly what you said the buffer zone because if you if you deal with the situation it, art is a really good way where you can creatively make your point across without really offending anyone. Just give them food for thought. And, and obviously, sometimes that is what these situations require, is food for thought. So it's respectful on both fronts, um, but it makes the point you need to make. Uh, and for an audience to walk away, analysing is a lot better than walking away like a, a mass mob with pitchforks. I
1: suppose, yeah, my question I would have, I suppose, is what is the place of political theatre in Hong Kong? I'm not sure that I necessarily was exposed to it. Or
0: well, it would be Cantonese I've... opera, classically. Cantonese opera was, but of course there is no modern Cantonese opera, but that's well, possibly I... an area you'd want to assess, really. You <laughs> know? I
2: actually watched um, a Cantonese version of Dario Fo's Can't Pay, Won't Pay, and Dario Fo is famous for political you know, satire. And, uh, obviously being in Cantonese and having, uh, actors from Hong Kong, and I think there were a couple from China cause, uh, they had a, a slight accent. It was an interesting approach and obviously they brought some issues in and that's great. And I thought it was great until the end, because the thing with Hong Kong theater, when they bring politics into it, they give you a message and they ram it down yeah, your throat. Yeah. Because whereas, propaganda. Yeah. Whereas, uh, the and I wrote about this in my blog when I reviewed it, Dario Fo's uh, take on political satire is that I present to you a situation and you take from it the absurdity and what's wrong with sure. it and you go off and change well, it. Well, I
0: think that's my point. And it's always the philosophy of saying, um, as artists, I mean, even if you're internationally coming into Hong Kong, which is much needed, uh, a weird sort of off-kilter thing, but Liverpool, my, my football team, sorry, Gray, you're a Birmingham fan, uh, <laughs> different leagues so we're all peaceful here um, but basically they've just landed in Hong Kong, they're doing a tour like pre-season tour the response for them uh, is like kids taking weeks off from their jobs to just hang out with a team, it's absolutely insane and it really, this is what you've got to understand because in our news we always see Hong Kong in this kind of political mess right now with the politics, with the uh, protests, with just just the insanity of it. That's all we get from this side through our social media, through our press or whatever. But this is when uh, Hong Kong really shines to me. This is the good, the positive side. You always get amazing positivity in the kids. They're, they're wide-eyed and they're eager to learn. They're eager to uh, have that exploration, that adventure. Case in point, a rubber duck turns up in the harbour. Do you remember that? Did you hear about that? The big inflatable, it. yeah, yeah. big inflatable. And everyone's going mad. There's pictures everywhere and all of this stuff, and it really it's almost that thing that you just need to push that imagination button, and you've you've got everyone thinking. And so, and this is again a bit planny when we're including the entire world in this plan, but to me it's almost like the exciting thing about what we can do, what we can bring into Hong Kong as artists, is a voice where we can passively tell a story. Without propaganda, because there's propaganda on both edges of every argument in, in politics, especially. It's usually in the form of a rant, isn't it? Like you have to accept this is the only path of thought or whatever. But there is a passive way you can deal with it uh, through the most abstract narrative you can think of. It could be a retake on the line Witch in the Wardrobe and deal with it. You know, Or
1: arguably the very act of, of making theatre yeah. uh, uh, self- Having your own self expression is a is a political act. I suppose it is I mentioned indeed, earlier yeah. that I hadn't necessarily seen anything that was kind of on the nose politically sure. other than little gestures or the appearance of certain coloured umbrellas <laughs> in a certain scene, you know. <laughs> exactly. So it's very yeah. Subtle or or the, the narratives focusing on human personal relationships, yeah. but there yeah. might be other kind of, yeah, layers times. Of, sure. of sure of metaphor that that were lost on me. But um, it strikes me that a that healthy society, healthy questioning society is one in which theatre is, is, you know, there's a, cult, a vibrant culture of art making and theatre making and that um, yeah, debate is happening. All well, I
0: think all it's, it's uh, I think at times of extreme frustration in, in life and in history, you can always see this when human beings get to that time of absolute frustration. Art actually has a boom, as a renaissance, at the point where you just think, man, it's all apocalyptic. Something happens and it kicks off a revolutionary change. And, you know, that's all on us, guys. (laughs) There is a
1: a huge new (laughs) performing arts (laughs) kind of zone being built on Kowloon, West Kowloon. Yes.
2: Oh, but yeah, that's yeah, yeah. a little bit controversial because it's been going on since I was in high school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the, you know, the, the plans, yeah. the idea is great. Well, it changes
0: if, every week, the idea. Well, Once no, no, it was no. going to be a football stadium as no, well, mm, they were thinking about.
2: An opera house. Yeah. The, the question is, we want to do something here, but what <laughs> would be the most beneficial and profitable, because of all, you know, all the people who are, you know, putting their two pence forth, And as well as, I mean, one thing that we mentioned last episode about the Hong Kong audience Mm -hmm. is that, okay, there are people who might want to make theatre, make art, but what about the people going to see it? Because it's not a big thing. Like, going to the theatre in Hong Kong is not a a regular, you know... Well,
0: this is a vital thing to state as well. Like, there isn't an audience as much as there are people in the audience that want to do what you're doing or think they can do it better than you. That's where Hong Kong is at. So... If you're in a band, for example, most of the people in the audience are there to take notes of how to improve their own band. Or they'll look at it like, well, I play guitar too. And most of the people in the audience... Yeah, yeah, pretty much networking event. Like, that's that's literally what it is. The audience numbers are very, very little. Mm -hmm. And in performing arts or theatre, even film, most people are students either uh, being told you must see theatre so you can learn English and it's coming to you soon in a classroom near you. What a great promo that is. Um, or if it's film, it's literally a cult following for Marvel because everyone else is watching it. And most cinemas in Hong Kong are where kids sleep. They get their two-hour 2, minute, their two hour power naps, you know, um, in between crazy, intense life. So what really has to happen is an audience has to be established as an audience. It's okay that we're networking and we're all a a massive cluster of artists. But can you imagine if everyone in your city is an artist and there is no audience? Because you're all an artistic audience. Well, I
2: think that's part of Hong Kong's development. Because, I mean, like, at this point, the artistic side is really developing. When I was studying uh, in school... I went to university to study theatre arts and English, sure. and my brother went to university to study philosophy. My, par- You know, our parents are really liberal in that sense, and everyone was asking them, what are they going to do when they come out? One theatre, one philosophy, that's like... Everyone else is a counsellor, a doctor, a lawyer... You're going to
0: create your own theatre company <laughs> called the Philosophy of Theatre. Everyone and was worried true. for my parents. Neurodrama, it's a new thing. Norodrama. In what way
1: can you encourage uh, the, the parents of, of Hong Kong young people to feel that working in the arts is going to be worthwhile
0: you have to make it unfortunately you have to make a commercial validation to the point Uh, which has happened i mean if you take uh, booms everywhere in the world again i was talking about this big renaissance because it's happening everywhere a lot of people's belief in art is drifting unless it's hollywood or london or new york or somewhere like this Um, and then the whole world flux in these three cities you know and everywhere else gets ignored. And the reason for that is is literally about commercial uh, validation. If you suddenly uh, made a parent think, well, being an actor is more beneficial than being a doctor, you're competing with that, you know. It, it's what pays the most. And what we have to do, I feel, is um, if you create the right movement where jobs can form in around that movement, especially somewhere like Hong Kong, where you take a concept that... that boosts merchandise for example or helps tourism or does both combination you've suddenly got a textile department working on t-shirt prints cap prints all of this stuff on merchandise you've got the the tourist board having places that become more famous because they've been featured in a movie or whatever that the world is watching and that's what we're dealing with a global audience for the first time in human history we truly have a global audience now and taking advantage of that makes it a valid thing and it doesn't necessarily ruin the art. We like our fringe art to not be these conglomerate thought commercial juggernauts. But even when, say um Stanscaf goes to Hong Kong and creates a line of Stanscaf t-shirts, because you can, for relatively cheap, and take that on a band tour around Hong Kong. Just that logic proves that you can you can bring money in through multiple sources. But yeah, that's just a crazy, stupid little example. But that's kind of what you got to do. I think you're competing with that commercial validation of the art. And once that happens, every parent in the world is going to support it. You just need to create the boom. We had it. I mean, both of us had it, Greg. Like when we were kids, there was movements and music. For me, it was Nirvana. And for you, it was the late stages of Beatles or whatever. And if you can imagine those booms... And what that did around the world, everyone suddenly went off and bought themselves a Fender Stratocaster. You know, I think disposable
1: income when you were a teenager, went on on records, went on seven inch records or albums, exactly, uh, cool, and, sure. and and that's that's how musicians made their money. People musicians don't make their money out of uh, of recorded music anymore. Yes.
2: Yeah. Well,
0: now it's the other commodities. Now your... it's it's the the ticket yeah. sales or the or the merchandise. You know. Yep. Yeah. For me, it was always, um, you've got to see theatre like you once viewed a rock tour, because literally, if you think about it, even Chinese opera, even the Cantonese opera, if you suddenly did all the music on uh, full orchestra, electric guitars with a full kitted out band and jazzed it up for this current era... Uh, All the paint becomes UV ultraviolet. You do all of the performance with a backlight. And I'm telling this because it should happen. You evolve the platform. It's still the fringe theatre. It's still doing everything that we all trust and believe in as artists. It's not selling out, so to say. But you can make it a tourable thing. Suddenly you've got this viable gift shop. Suddenly you make that part of the performance. You can sell um, key rings in the shape of props from your performance if they're iconic props, you know. And suddenly, I especially if, it, if
1: it's bound up in the kind of concept, yeah. the, the broad concept, yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, you could you could, you make could make get it. sponsored by uh, by a rice company, eh? Do uh,
1: believe me, <laughs> the,
0: Tilda come in and have <laughs> their name all just over it.
1: Enormous expense. Of, I know of, um, uh, of, of bringing in rice already yeah. requires quite a bit of sponsorship, sponsorship for sure. Yeah, but yeah, we, uh, when I was directing a, a few years ago with uh, Kiln ensemble and sure, we had a yeah. piece called The Furies which these are was, another
0: local yeah group, local
1: yeah. artists they came out of Birmingham University they yeah. graduates of 2006 I think and um, they uh, we, we made a we made a, 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 a terrific piece I'm very proud of it it's a music theatre piece that was a kind of full concept thing Yeah, where it was a kind of merchandise yeah there was we saw it, it. You know, we had the yeah. t-shirts goodbye yeah. this and that and yeah. uh, and um, it's a tricky one anyway because you, you don't want that to kind of take press, you know, tip the balance. But just getting the gigs in the first place is incredibly difficult. And one of the problems there we had is because it, it was neither a gig, it was not in the gig. Yeah, camp, yeah, yeah. Or it yeah. wasn't purely in the theatre camp, yeah. it straddled the in two. The middle, yeah. Which is for me where all the interest lies, you know, when you collide those art forms, when you collide audiences. When you're, you're working a kind of hybrid thing and finding new territory, that's where exciting original things happen, in Yeah, my mind. But I mean... In, audiences we, take a bit of time to catch up.
0: They and do, they do. And in closing, um, one good example of just on a positive spin would be my experiences uh, with the RSC and the growth being from Stratford. The RSC, before it had the whole revival, which I think was a lot of American money, financing the revival of the theatre and the such. Their branding now is exactly what I'm talking about. Everything that was true about the RSC is still integral and it's still absolutely the RSC. And I know this is like the elite top we're talking about. But if you go to Stratford now, the way they set it up is like going to a Hollywood history museum where you get to see all the wardrobe, the famous character um, garments that would have been worn by, you know, the best of the best. They have a massive gift shop. Their branding covers everything you can think of. And then you turn up in London. Not only have you got The Globe now, which has been revived, uh, you've also got The Roundhouse in Camden, which is now doing, you know, pop music gigs and and, and Tim Minchin's DVD, you know, comedy and such. That's what I mean. You just have to, and it's not true, again, you can't make uh, super brands of everything, but if you just turn the volume up slightly on your stuff, I think there are creative ways, especially using it for your performance, and my closing statement was the uh, last thing we saw you doing is um, your uh, project in in Birmingham about food crime.
1: Interesting. I mean, just coming back to the RSC thing. Yeah. I, I, having spent uh, Sunday in, yeah. in Stratford, which so it's kind of quite uppermost in my memory, but it's inevitable for a, for a, a big funded organisation. There will every arts organisation it has to look for diversifying its income streams yeah, of course yeah and they can really yeah. do that
0: but it's a sellable brand it's an international recognized yeah, totally. sellable brand. you know if
1: you're in the shop there's loads of stuff that actually you know you kind of want that that, that, yeah. that helps to uh, enrich your life um at the other end of the scale the food crime musical which is called the hand that feeds yeah. is a kind of pop-up thing in a way and it's been driven by a local Think tank, a kind of academic science think tank called New Optimists, and the New Optimists. One of the kind of driving issues for the New Optimists is food politics. Yeah, uh, uh, where we where we get our food from. How do we feed a population in fifty years' time? Uh, how do we create sustainable kind of economies where where we're not just purely about consumption? and money, but we are we are genuinely providing nutrition. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because as we all know, in a, in a city like Birmingham, there are food deserts, there are places where people eat yeah, yeah, just, crap. Yeah, they terrifying they, they, stuff, yeah. They spend so much of their, you know, meagre incomes on food that has no nutritional value yeah. and that uh, does very little for their health. And trying to balance that with the, the astronomic rising costs of health provision in this country, there has to be a connected thinking way of making good food, uh, food that has, what's the word, providen- what's provenance. Provenance, is provenance. Provenance. the word I'm searching yes. for. Yeah. And uh, with the hand that feeds, uh, we, it focuses on food crime. Yeah. And in a nutshell, food crime is about how we can prove that what we are eating is what it says it is. Yeah. The tip of the iceberg, certainly in this country, was the horse meat scandal of of a couple of years ago. Yeah. And the reason that came to popular attention in this country is because people love horses. They don't want to eat horse meat.
0: (laughs) It's just not natural. Well, it's it's, mentally, it's like alarming, isn't It, it? Yeah it us. is alarming yeah.
1: because we yes because we don't see horse as meat, meat. Being, no as, no
0: we see meat. yeah we respect horses too. and the only
1: reason this this was discovered is because scientists in a lab working for the food standards agency happened to do a dna sure. test on some dodgy lasagna yeah, yeah, yeah. you know yeah. and and that story is still ongoing there's a guy who's just been jailed for procuring horse meat yeah. from eastern europe or whatever but um with Less money being spent on food safety in this country, there being fewer officers who are policing that whole system, then the opportunities for making yeah. money yeah. out of dodgy Scandals. scams yeah. are are increasing. Yeah. And you know these stories exist in Hong Kong, in China, everywhere. Yeah, oh, you know, we had
2: a really bad uh, baby milk scandal that's still kind of being resolved.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that resulted in the deaths mm-hmm. of, of... children, yeah. ...unknown yeah. numbers of, of, yeah. of kids. It's There's also stories about what they call gutter oil, isn't yes. there, in, in, in mainland China and yep. perhaps yep. Hong Kong as well, where, where basically, you know, engine oil was being used for, to fry
0: food. Yeah, or um, anything dragged oil. from the sewers that was skimmed, I think at one point they said that. It's it's intense, yeah.
1: it's and And where... Particularly in a world where we're eating increased n- amounts of processed food, yeah, there are so many opportunities in the food chain to make money. And when you think that every every stage, every transaction involves making money, and your cheap frozen pizza, which costs <laughs> one pound forty nine, yeah. has you know forty different ingredients from twenty different countries, yeah then everybody's making money out of those. But it's
0: fascinating exactly what you just said. To me, it seems a lot more expensive to run an operation around the world to get ingredients on the cheap than it does to open up a a garden in your backyard and grow your own stuff. To me, just as a corporate scheme, I know it's not because we're talking about how cheap and accessible all this junk is, but when you think about it on a human level... It's not logical. It's almost like why am I sourcing my pepperoni from twenty seven countries? You know, it's 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 just insanity. Uh, it's that was a powerful play, by the way. We we as that globalization. That well,
2: happens. it is.
0: It's also about what Gray said. It's it's about uh, taking advantage. It's if if things are processed, you can hide so much in it. And it gives you the illusion that it's ice cream when it's a chemical compound of 60,000 different things, you know.
1: And it's not just the, the cheap foods that get yeah. this treatment as well. It's, sometimes it's the high-end produce. So there's been a scandal recently about uh, paprika or, or cayenne pepper. Because actually you don't, you know, you need <laughs> to do a science lab test yeah. on it yeah. to prove the, that is what, what it is. is. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that stuff is so easy to Cut.
2: Yeah, 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 It's just colored powder. It's colored powder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. is it? It could yeah. be,
1: you know, yeah.
0: could be chalk, chalk <laughs> with could a bit anything, of coloring.
2: Really, yeah, of course.
1: The, as long as it's the right color. Yeah. So it's really difficult. Another one is manuka honey. That's a that's a classic. Which yeah, is this no, ad, yeah. So it's so expensive. Yeah, yeah. Of course, so expensive means that somebody's making a lot of money out of it. Yeah. And it was a, it was, it was a, only a bunch of auditors or accountants that were kind of cross checking. That realised that the amount that was on sale globally or had been sold was way in excess of the amount that could be legitimately produced. That's crazy. With with that, yeah, mm. that label. Yeah, yeah, And so, actually, when you look now, you see manuka style, and it <laughs> yeah. was all kind yeah. of ways. Yeah. Of kind of getting well, they rounded. did the same
0: thing with maple syrup. Exactly the same thing. So maple syrup went from sauce directly to maple flavoured yeah. syrup. You know, yeah. Yeah, same thing. So same everybody's, thing. everybody's everybody's
1: being ripped off, you know, yeah. and getting dodgy, doctored stuff. So the, the the food crime musical was an opportunity to create a thirty five minute song cycle, really a little mini musical, out on the street, yeah. to just start highlighting this this issue. And the consultant, the the academic consultant on the project, was Professor Chris Elliott, who, who works in Belfast at um, Queen's Belfast, and he was the guy who was commissioned by the government to write the report into the horse meat right, scandal. Right, so he's right. the, the top yep. fellow, really. Ch- and he's a really fascinating, interesting guy to, to kind of, you know, to fo- follow his Twitter feed or whatever.
0: Well, it's, it's quite <laughs> funny because it's, it's like um, when you're in uh, the USA, pretty much there's such a spotlight on that almost every week. And uh, when you come back to the UK, it shocks you to just walk into the shadow of it because you... Again being being English you always think, nah, that will never happen here and now, now it's happening everywhere, as Graham said. And on that happy note, because we have yeah. to we have to end this, but we will be back with you, Graham. We'll we'll do another episode yes, with please. you. It's for sure. Lovely to talk to you. It's been great, haven't you? What a what an amazing trip. Yes. I've learned loads. <laughs> it's gonna be good. Good conversation, but food for thought. There you go. <laughs> there's the there's the pun. Alright, so um we'll be back this time, same place. Uh, next
2: week. Find us on facebook.com forward slash maildemon, M-A-I-L-D-E-M-O-N, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Project FIA.